Welcome to Real Crime NYC, where you'll hear real New York City crime stories told by real New York City cops. We'll also discuss some hot topics that have a law enforcement angle. I'm Pat. Join Chris, Bill, and I for this episode of Real Crime NYC, where we'll discuss a murder case that we call Betty in a Bag. Let's pick up where we left off. You know, we've talked to the family. We've done our computer checks. We know a little bit about our victim. We know who she is. We know what she's about. We know what her circumstances are. We have the the information about her car. We now know about our suspected at this point perpetrators who are her roommates who are no longer at that location. But again, we know they're in the Bronx. We know where they are. They're staying at a shelter and we know where that car is. So She's actually killed on July 25th, we believe. That's the last time anyone saw her. And we do have that video from the building. And she's not found till October 4th. There's an autopsy conducted by the medical examiner on the 5th. And it comes back at that time. They failed to determine the cause of death. And one of the reasons for that is they wanted to be sure that this was not, there wasn't an obvious cause of death. And one of the things OCME does, they do a toxicology test. I mean, for all we know, at this point, this person might have overdosed on fentanyl or something, and it was just a body dump. You know, someone was afraid of of the repercussions of of that overdose. Uh, So we still don't have technically a homicide. So we're not going to look to bring those perpetrators in and question them or arrest them at this point because we don't know what we have. And you, you don't want to go in the box and talk to these people unless you know you're talking to someone that you're going to try to charge with a murder rather than just disposal of a body. So it gets a little complicated there, but we know a lot about both our perp and our suspect at this point. So, you know, what's the next step, guys? Yeah, so you you know it's a murder. Um, now you need the facts to support it to the district attorney. So like you say, we're waiting for the death certificate. I think it's uh, another important fact if the uh, the scientific supporting evidence isn't clearly available, uh, you said the particular hemorrhaging is very light. Uh, the higher bone uh, was not was was minimally broken, or maybe a, a stress crack that they weren't able to determine it was asphyxiation immediately. A lot of well, times, Chris, the- Chris, you used a couple of terms there that that you know most people not in this business might not know. Can you explain to us what the particular hemorrhaging is and what the hyoid bone is? So when there is a strangulation, uh, you have a, a bone in your throat. It's called a hyoid bone. It's almost like a wishbone. It's a very delicate bone. And generally, that bone breaks immediately. And the uh, the, the pathologist in the medical examiner's office is able to determine that it's a, it's a strangulation because of the uh, bone breaking. You also have particular hemorrhaging uh, when the stress is pressed on the neck and the throat, uh, the, the blood vessels in the eyes tend to bulge out and that's the uh, the hemorrhaging uh, in the eye area uh it's very common with, with being strangled to, to death in this case it wasn't that pronounced uh, at times when the uh, the regular pathologist cannot determine it they'll send the throat to a throat specialist a throat uh pathologist and it takes a couple of months longer for the uh the pathologist who specializes in the throat area to make their determination and uh pretty sure that's what happened here being that the homicide happens in July and we don't have a uh, final death certificate until December 24th. Yeah. The, the professionals at the medical examiner's office 
uh, I always found them to be a wealth of knowledge. And, and, you know, I like to talk to them at the scene. I like to talk to them on the phone. You learn something from them every time you talk to them. And they're invaluable in a murder investigation because half of your case is going to be them testifying that this was a murder, not some other kind of a death. You know, I particularly like to talk to the uh, forensic anthropologist because they'll tell you all the little tricks of the trade about, you know, what you can learn from just looking at a body. Uh, but the chief medical examiner's office is invaluable to detectives' investigations. And, you know, we have to give a shout out to them. You know, without them, we're not making these cases. Well, the New York City medical examiner's office is really second to none. They, they lead the law enforcement community and the, the scientific community uh, in what they do. I just think of the volumes of, of murders we have throughout the years. Uh, and these people do this every single day. And they, they're really a wealth of information for the investigators. Yeah. So let's get back into the case. You know, I don't want it to sound like this is a, a police procedural here. This is a discussion about an interesting case. So, uh, you know. The autopsy, she's killed on the 25th of July, August 4th, the body's recovered. August 5th, there's a there's an autopsy, which, which didn't determine the cause of death. But one important point, on October 3rd, the medical examiner come, comes back to us and says, the toxicology results are in, and this is not an overdose. So now we're pretty sure we have an outright murder. This wasn't a body dump. The body was dumped because she was murdered. And we suspect that she was strangled or asphyxiated because there's particular hemorrhaging, like Chris explained, and uh, there's some damage to the hyoid bone in the neck. So now the decision has to be made to bring those perps in. They've been, they've been out there for a while. We still know where they are. They're still in the Bronx. But now a decision has to be made. Like, uh, as detective bosses, what are you guys thinking about, like, how we bring them in, when we bring them in, and what steps are we going to take prior to bringing them in to prepare? You don't want to go in there cold turkey. You want to do your homework. Detectives want to know everything they can about the scene, about the person that was murdered. They want to know about everything they can about the people they're going to be speaking to because they want to know whether they're lying or not, up front, they want to know the questions. They want to know what the anticipated answers are going to be. So they're prepared to know when they do lie or if they do lie and they don't come out and just admit it right off the bat, what follow-up questions they'll have for them. Very important. Yeah, so let, let me give you a little background on our perpetrators. So the female is 37 years old. She has a criminal record. The male is 42 years old. He has a criminal record. Again, from the data we know, um, he has a couple of aliases, the male. One of them is Charlie Brown. The other is Divine Powers. So this gives you a little insight into the psychology of this person. Um, he's got many prior arrests, including robberies and resisting arrests. So we know he can be violent. Uh, and he has two tattoos. Again, back to the tattoos. Very important for police work. One tattoo is of a gun. And the other tattoo is of a graveyard. So you can imagine what that detective is thinking when he's looking through this before he's going to talk to this guy. You know, you know, we're, we're thinking we're on the right track here, if nothing else. But what are they going to discuss before picking them up? I mean, some of the things I would discuss is under what circumstances are we going to pick them up? Are we going to try to pick the two of them up separately? Are we going to go to the Bronx and get them on what day? You know, and then you're going to sit down once you have them in the, in 
in the station house. You're going to want to develop a plan. Yeah, you're going to have an interrogation plan. And part of that starts with the ride back. Part of that starts with the ride back to the house. Are we going to develop a rapport by having, you know, chit-chat in the car on the way back? Hey, did you see the Jets game? Man, what a disappointment. Yeah, generally, you're gonna you're gonna come up with a plan. Uh, everybody's gonna, everybody involved is gonna give some sort of information on how they feel they they that you should undertake it. The, the squad commander, uh, the, the, the 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 case detective, everybody involved, um, and it, it's gonna be a uh, uh, or buying on everybody on on what's the best way to attack it. But the best detective work is as it unfolds, navigating the situation. Um, Sometimes they're lying, and 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 you're able to catch them in it by by contradicting their statements. Um, it's really the the detective who's going to be a going to be the one handling the perp from start to finish. That's going to be the most valuable person at this point. You try to figure out whether you're going to go right at them. Am I going to show them the video of them with the bag? Am I going to show them all the evidence that I have and just go right at them and say, "Hey, listen, we got you," or do you hold back? On what you had. Those are decisions that are made prior to going in there with the squad commander, the case detective, and maybe other people that are very good at doing interrogations. And it depends on the people that you're speaking to. And then do you play them off of each other? Do you, if you have two people, in this case, you got two different perps, do you play them against each other? And that's one thing that really is successful because one is going to say, hey, I didn't do it. They did it. And the other one's going, oh, hold on, hold on. That's what they're saying. They said that I did it, and they're going to give the other one up. So there's many different ways you could go about doing this interrogation, but it's so exciting when you do do it for a detective. Really exciting to go in there, into the box. We call it the box when you get them in an interrogation room. Probably one of the most exciting parts of, of being an investigator. Yeah, so the answer to that question that you posed, how are we going to go at them? You know, do we try to cajole them into a confession? Do we try to trick them into a confession? Do we try to just lay it out for them. And in this case, it all hinged on sizing up the background of that male perpetrator. Because again, we think this was a strangulation. The fingers are cut off. It was probably the male, not the female who committed this crime. She may have assisted and be just as culpable, but it was probably him who went hands on. So when you size him up, he's 42 years old. He's been in prison before. He's exhibited violent behavior before. Matter of fact, I believe he was arrested for a domestic violence case just shortly prior to the murder. He's got a gun tattoo. He's got a uh, uh, a cemetery tattoo. You know, this guy's a hardcore guy. So in this case, they're thinking, you know what? We're not going to try to flim flam him. We're going to go in there. We're going to let him sit for a while. We're going to separate the two of them, and we're going to let him sit for a while. Then we're going to go in there respectfully, treat him with respect. He's hardcore, and we're going to say, listen, we got you. We got video. We got. We recovered the body. We recovered the sheets. We connected it. It shows you taking the body to the car. We know the car went to Canarsie Pier. We got you. So they decided to go directly at this guy. And uh, just as a little side note, if you remember, we discussed two trips to Canarsie Pier. They ended up going to Canarsie Pier in the middle of the night, like 2 o'clock in the morning, both of them, the male and the female roommate, to dump the body. And when they got there, it was it was a really hot August night. The pier was loaded with people. They couldn't do it without being seen. So they actually drove back with the body in the car, 
and went back to the apartment. The next day, our male perp goes back and dumps the body in the ocean when he could do it without being uh, discovered. So uh, our female, we put her in the box by herself. We let them sit for a while. We went in and we talked to her, and she basically said, yourself, I'm not giving you nothing. She was hardcore, and he wasn't. What happens is they go into him. They lay it out, just like I said. They put all of it on the table, and he gives it up. He says, yeah, I wanted to use the car. She wouldn't let me use the car. We got into an argument. We got, you know, hands-on. We got a little physical. And I ended up, you know, fighting with her. And I thought I just knocked her out. She was on the couch. I thought she was still alive. I came back an hour or two later. She's a different color. And I realized she's dead. So all of this is over use of her vehicle. He wanted to use the car. And she said no. And they... He gets angry about it. That's what raised his level of anger, not using the video. So like I said, you know, they, they decided to go straight at this guy. Um, they went into the female after letting her sit in the box for a while. And she says, I'm not, I'm not talking to you. And that's the worst thing a detective could hear. Because when they say they're not talking to you, you're not allowed to question them any further. So you don't want to hear the L word. Yeah. You don't want to hear the L word, the lawyer word. Um, she actually just said she refused to to give us any statement at all. And at that point, you have to stop. You know, there's there's uh, sometimes you can go back after that. But usually when they say they're not giving a statement, that's the end of it. So she turns out to be hardcore. We're not getting anything from her. So we've already made the decision to go in on the mail and just lay it out. Hey, we got you. That strategy worked. Uh, he gave it up. And uh, he explains to us that uh, he asked to use, they both asked to use her car, the victim's car. She refused to let them use the car. It developed into an argument, which became physical, and he ends up uh, choking her. Now, his story might be self-serving, might be true. We'll never know. Uh, he says uh, he thought he left her alive. She was on the couch. He left her. She, you know, He thought she was still alive. He came back an hour later, and he, it's obvious that she's dead. Uh, the cutting off of the fingers had to be explained. So, you know, that was an effort on his part to not leave any forensic evidence. And it wasn't about the fingerprints so much as it was about the DNA under her fingernails. I guess everybody in the world has watched enough of uh, TV to know that uh, you don't want to leave DNA under the fingernails. And uh, that was the explanation for the removal of the fingers. By the way, we were never able to recover the fingers. But at the end of the day, you might say he fingered himself for this murder. So, uh, you know, he gave it up and he gave it up pretty complete. But it was really the good strategy that was put together before going in there. You don't go in there willy nilly. You know, you know, this guy's hardcore. You just lay it out all out from he knows whether he's whether he's done or he's not done. Uh, so both of these people ended up being uh, charged and convicted for their crimes and both went to jail. Um, she's out now. I don't know if he's in or out at this point. She was released. She did a, a year and seven months. Uh, he's still in, he's doing 18 years. I believe he's in until uh, 2032. So now we know what really happened to Betty in a bag, an unusual murder. Yeah. But for the seven, five, we expect anything. So there ends the life of a troubled woman. She was a mother. She was a daughter. She was a niece. In some ways, very typical as murder goes. She was killed by someone she knew. And in other ways, it was really unique. When do you find a body in a bag on a deserted island in New York City missing its fingers? 
One thing is probably certain. This is not how she expected her story to end. So we got some questions uh, about our use of, of uh, nicknames for cases. Uh, some people thought it was disrespectful, but it's really not. Like, for instance, in this case, we call it Betty in a Bag. And that's just a simple description of what the case is. In the beginning, you don't know the ID of the victim in this case. And it's not meant at all to be disrespectful. Uh, you know, detectives are known for a little bit of dark humor sometimes. But there's a practical reason for it, too. If I was to walk into the 7-5 squad room and say, hey, guys, what do we got on case number 02-7765? Everyone would look around the room and say, what is he talking about? Now, if I walked into that squad room and said, what do we got on Betty in a bag? Everybody instantly knows what we're talking about. The other factor is, you know, there's a little bit of dark humor there. You know, uh, detectives see some terrible things every day. And, you know, you build up a library of those uh, those terrible sights in your head. And in order to keep their sanity, it's it's a coping mechanism to make uh, make light of something that's uh, that's so terrible. So, you know, for their own mental health, uh, they're compartmentalizing these things. So. Uh, we don't want anybody to think, uh, you know, we're being disrespectful when we call the deceased Betty in a bag. We know her name. We know who, who she is. And as a matter of fact, in respect to her, we're not actually saying her real name. But, uh, you know, that's just the thing detectives do. They, they, uh, they give their case a nickname so everybody instantaneously knows exactly what's being talked about. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. And that's that. We'll see you when we see you. Join us on our next episode of Real Crime NYC.